and welcome to For You the War Is Over for part two of our episode on Lieutenant Alistair Cram with special guest speaker Professor David Gus. In episode one, we covered Alistair's capture and first couple of attempt escapes. If you haven't heard part one yet, please feel free to go back and listen to it. Uh, we pick up in this episode with Alistair having just arrived in Garvey, the Italian Colditz. As you know, it was a tough, tough place to get out of. And most people who were in both Italian prisons and German POW camps agree that the Italians were were tougher to pull things over on. The Germans were so methodical that it was easier to sort of understand their routines and work around them. And they also didn't go into the camps or into the, uh, the barracks as much as the Italians. The Italians were co- constantly going indoors um, and they were surprising the prisoners. So Alistair, um, almost immediately upon getting out of prison, he had a little bit of a respite, and he sort of had to recondition his hearing and his eyesight. And the uh, solitary confinement was a cold and and water-soaked, mildew place with uh, fungus running down like snot green on the walls. It was a terrible, terrible place. That sounds horrible. Yeah, it was all, and it was inside a stone. Um, room that that was carved out of the rocks. After several weeks, he was approached to join a tunnel escape. Alistair did not like tunneling. He made it very clear. He was a person who liked to climb and tunneling was was boring and uh, claustrophobic. The exact opposite. The exact opposite. But the people who were building this tunnel realized that Alistair, along with Jack Pringle, had skills that they needed. The tunnel was discovered really by accident. It was um, inside the uh, the Batman's, the orderly's space. On the upper bunk, one of the Batman was turning around in his sleep and his head hit the wall. And he realized that the there, it was uh, not a solid concrete wall, but it sounded hollow. And so they decided to explore and they cut a hole in the wall and they dropped a stone down several seconds later there was a sound of a splash so they knew that they had come up with something very important so is this is this the start of the famous cistern escape then this is the start of the cistern escape exactly it begins around uh, i would say around mid-september 1942 when prisoners had only been there a couple of months now, at this point, there's a, a lot of divergence around the actual leadership and how it was discovered and who headed the cistern. But what is is definitely clear is that um, when they finally got going, the person who really was in charge of the tunnel was Buck Palm. And Palm was one of the really great characters in all the POW camps. He was a legendary figure. And he did various things in the southern part of Africa, not just South Africa, but Namibia at the time. And he was a professional wrestler, and he was a car mechanic, and he was a, um, a miner, a gold miner. And when war broke out, he was a little old to be a fighter pilot, which is what he wanted to be. So he lied about his age, never thinking that he could pass the written exam, he was not a scholar. 
But he did pass the exam, and he was always a little confused about the birth date that he gave, and never <laughs> giving the same birth date twice. And, um, but he was about Alistair's age, actually. Palm was the person that they contacted to set up a team to investigate the cistern. They didn't know what was down there. They had no idea. Was this because of his background in mining and the gold mining, or was it just because he was a, a well-respected figure? It was his strength and his gold mining uh, passion and his, his fearlessness. I'm going to read a little piece that Alistair wrote about Buck Palm. And this is beginning with Alistair's description. Buck's mean appearance struck terror in the hearts of his captors. He had devoted much of his time to physical culture. And with his massive chest, great muscles, and long black heavy hair hanging down six inches long, as he often wore it with a big loincloth, he was deemed the equal of Tarzan of the apes. He carried on a PT class at 7 a.m. in the lower courtyard, and his rigorous snorts and violent movements attracted so much attention that the orderly officer and guard turned out to see if he were preparing a riot. He had no mercy in his class. I well remember Jack belly down on his blanket, contorted into a horrible arc, one of Buck's great hands clasping his knee, the other on his thorax, exerting great pressure. Jack's brown eyes were glazed and resigned like a spaniel's. As Buck walked among his directees, they redoubled their efforts, lest they should fall into his hands. Combining his mining and background and the four tunnels he had already dug with the fact that he was utterly fearless, completely dedicated to escape, and the strongest man in the camp, it's little surprise that Buck was selected to lead the new tunnel. So one morning after roll call, Buck and two of his friends slipped into the orderly's room. The bed was moved and a scaffold arranged so that Buck, lying on it with his arms above his head, could be lifted up and horizontally thrust through the opening like a spear. Inside was a steel bar stretched across the shaft. He grabbed it, swinging his body below. Hanging on like an acrobat, his feet just reached another bar seven feet further down. Once on that, he carefully crouched, grabbed the bar, and dropped by his hands once again. Swinging on to a narrow ledge, he reached the top of an ancient ladder. It descended 60 feet into a pool of water that came up to his chest. He was in the center of a huge cistern. The skill that was used to swing on these bars was really kind of amazing. Yeah, that sounded incredible. Having no idea where he's going. So the, the cistern was the secret water system that was fed by all of these sort of gutters that led down into it. It could hold um, an enormous amount of water. They, they estimated 2 million liters of water. It was probably about 120 feet by 60 feet and 60 feet high. And they decided to put a team together to uh, create a tunnel. Now this 
first tunnel was led by a team of four South Africans. One of the South Africans, which who was really critical to this team, was a person named Alan Pohl. And Alan Pohl was a mining surveyor. And he and Buck, they were the ones who sort of directed the efforts at the beginning. Their idea was that they were going to tunnel out and hopefully intersect with an already existent tunnel, which was one of the famous kind of escape tunnels that the prince or king or whoever was the leader in, in the castle at the time would be able to escape any kind of siege. They tunneled for um, a couple of months, just short of it, maybe six weeks. But after six weeks, uh, the rain started to come in the fall and it rained uh, ferociously for days on end. And all of a sudden, the water level in the cistern started to rise and it eventually covered their efforts, their tunnel. Not only did it cover the entrance to the tunnel, they lost all their tools. So all of the initial efforts were wiped out entirely. So they decided to regroup and they uh, created a ledge which now was about 40 feet up. And to get to this ledge, they had to swim through the icy water and uh, completely naked, climb up a rope. And they had a, a ledge where they, in the corner, had put a, a plank from one corner to the other and wedged it in there. Climbing up to a rope, they got to that platform and they now decided that they were going to tunnel directly out. They tunneled for about 15 feet along the ledge. So they started uh, tunneling outwards. Now, at this point, underneath the wall, which was the mess hall, and then below the mess hall was the rooms of the, the orderlies, there was something called the Mesaluna, which was a bastion. And on that bastion were a number of dwellings which were occupied by the Carabinieri and the guards. Their idea was to tunnel through 30 feet of rock and come out exactly on the ridge line of one of these houses, which was built against the wall. Then they would drop off of the roof from the ridge line, cross the Mesaluna entirely to the other side and tie a rope to this one tree that existed there and climb down the rope and then descend from Gavi into the town and escape. It was an incredible engineering feat that they uh, succeeded in being able to accomplish basically because of Alan, Palm, uh, Alan Pohl's skills as a mining surveyor. Now, Alistair and Jack Pringle were members of this team. There were six tunnelers, the two Batman and Alan Pohl, Buck Palm, and then two other South Africans. Alistair and Jack were asked to be the security people, the people who would bribe the guards for tools. They would get money to create um, an escape kit for everybody. All the things that they would need to escape, they were the security people above ground. They might have gone down into the tunnel once, and Alistair says they did probably more damage than good, and they were never asked to come back. Good self-awareness there. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, 
they tunneled until April. Well, actually until uh, until March. And by March, they were getting to the very end and realizing they were going to be able to make it. So they uh, expanded their group. They brought in a couple of other people, including Peter Med, the pilot, who had been captured very early when his plane was shot down um, in, in the water off of Libya. And there was another uh, uh, engineer who had been part of the first team that uh, Dean Anthony Dean Drummond had dropped down the commandos who performed the first commando raid on a, on a dam in southern Italy. And this person, Jerry Daly, completed the group of 10. They figured that any more than 10 would be too difficult to hide. They would, of course, do it on a very, very rainy night when the guards would be in their rooms. But at that point in March, David Sterling arrived. He was an enormous catch for the Italians. He was actually given his own room. And he had been friendly with Jack Pringle before the war. So they immediately hit it off. Alistair liked Sterling. It was a mutual thing. Partially, they were both Scots and they were both mountain climbers. Sterling, not as experienced or successful mountain climber as Alistair, but he had trained before the war to climb Everest, which never happened. He uh, gave that up when the war uh, began and immediately flew back to Scotland and joined his, uh, I guess it was his father's regiment and got off to a kind of a bad start uh, in North Africa where he evidently was about to be court-martialed. He had also hurt his leg and he at that point came up with the whole idea of the SAS and that sort of redeemed him and he in short order rose through the ranks and as you know became a colonel by the time he was captured a year and a half or so later. The one thing everybody agrees about Sterling, and there's probably not much they do, is that he was incredibly persuasive. He had a way with uh, commanding men that got people to do things that they really shouldn't be doing. And he talked Alistair and particularly Pringle into thinking about getting uh, included in the tunnel exit and the team of 10 that had been chosen. And he made the case with the SBO, who was um, a New Zealander at the time, and they agreed that he would be part of the team. And Alistair and uh, Jack said they would escape with him, which changed their plans quite a bit because Alistair and Jack, who both spoke good Italian, particularly Jack, they were going to go by train and bus all the way to Switzerland, but realized it would be impossible for Sterling, who was six foot seven, stood out like a sore thumb, and didn't speak any Italian. So um, they decided they would go by foot. They picked the order that they would go uh, out and random, and the fifth one out was Alistair. They picked a very wet, rainy night. Uh, it took a while to get that night. They had a couple of false starts. 
And the night that they planned on going out was Adolf Hitler's birthday. There was a lot of partying going on down below, singing and drinking. Again, people were uh, down below the Carabinieri and Italian guards were in their quarters, kept there by the very, very heavy rain. And they um, got into the tunnel. They climbed out. There was barbed wire uh, along the wall that had been set there so that people couldn't have dropped down from way, way above. The wire had been electrified. Buck Palm almost died when he first um, tried to cut through the wire and got this incredible shock. They had to carry him out. This was earlier on. And so the South Africans first went. They all got out, tied the rope to the tree and disappeared. Next was Alistair. He went, he got to the rope, he waited, nobody came. He then climbed down and the rope broke. He fell 40 feet or so right on his pack, which crushed his ribs. And he immediately knew that he had broken his ribs and probably got a concussion as well. He slid down the mountain, which by now was filled with mud and grass and water and uh, slid down to a place where they had agreed they would meet. But nobody came. And then he disappeared across the river and struggled to the to find a place to sleep that night in incredible pain with these broken ribs. Behind him, Jack had gotten to the rope. And he saw what happened. He climbed down the rope and then dropped and let himself drop and did not get hurt. He did lose most of the things, his knapsack that he was traveling with, but he still had his money. And he went to meet Alistair, couldn't find him in the, in the dark and the rain and the storm. And so he went off on his own. Behind them was Sterling. And Sterling, <laughs> I, was, I actually can't wait to hear what he did. <laughs> well, he, you know, it's so kind of half-assed, you know, uh, <laughs> because uh, Sterling is very impatient. Instead of sort of discreetly crawling and uh, hiding as he can as he crosses the Messalona, he strides across <laughs> this enormous figure who must have looked like a ghost to the Italians who discovered him when they suddenly opened the door to their quarters and came out probably to take a leak, who knows. And there was this giant figure standing there and a chase begins. And so now Sterling's running all around this quarter, this uh, Mesa Luna, and they finally trap him along the, the stone wall. But when they catch him, Moscatelli, who's uh, livid, with anger about what's happened, comes and slaps Sterling, and at which point, of course, tries to break loose and kill Moscatelli. It's, it's a pretty dramatic scene uh, against the wall in this uh, incredible rain, and everybody's covered with mud. But uh, people right behind uh, Sterling see what's happening, and uh, particularly Peter Med, who's right behind him. And Med goes under the floor of one of the quarters and hides there for several hours waiting to get out. He is, ev he is eventually um, 
captured and pulled out from there and uh, and uh, pistol whipped, as is one of the orderlies. So they were really brutalized in ways that later on were uh, after the war were questioned whether there were war crimes that were committed in terms of their treatment. I was wow. going to say, I mean, the, the, these are acts that are in direct contravention of the Geneva Convention. Yeah, ex exactly. Um, and uh, particularly for Al Alistair, who was captured after three days, he is uh, hard-pressed to be able to escape with these broken ribs, which are very, very painful, as you can imagine. His idea was he was going to walk all the way to the Swiss border and escape through the Alps, but he does not get very far. He's the first one to be recaptured, other than the people behind Sterling and Sterling himself. And when he's brought back to the uh, castle, he's, of course, berated by Moscatelli, who he describes as being a sort of broken man slumped in his uh, seat and Moscatelli's a very arrogant fellow, and he's sort of the wind's been taken out of his sails. But there's a sergeant that uh, named Maza, or Matza, who Alistair had a terrible um, run-in with in relationship to. Alistair was stripped and uh, kicked in his broken ribs repeatedly, and then uh, struck in the face repeatedly by this fellow, the sergeant Maza, and. Then he was threatening to throw Alistair over the wall, which I mean, this wall is like 100 feet down, straight down. And at that point, the uh, other guard went for help because he thought that he was actually going to kill Alistair. And he was pulled off Alistair, the sergeant, and uh, Alistair was left there in the cold, naked that night, after which... Alistair went into the hospital where he spent a couple of weeks recuperating. And that is this, uh, the story of the Cistern Tunnel Escape, which is the only really successful escape in which prisoners got out and free of the castle. Um, even though they didn't get back home, it was considered a tremendous success and feeling that they had indeed really beaten the Italians. Yeah, I, I think it's it's almost worth just briefly describing Gavi Castle. I mean, I've, I've certainly seen a photograph and I know you, David, have actually been there. Um, it might be worth just taking a couple of minutes to actually describe the castle itself because it is, it's very imposing. It is. It's built on a, a, a rock, uh, the top of this mountain, which is pure stone, and they carved it into the stone, and um, that it has these two compounds that overlooked the road that led to um, both Milan and Venice. And so it was a strategic place to command anybody going between the city-states of Genoa and Venice, the two powers of the time. Mm -hmm. So that's why it had been a castle that turned into a fortress or a fortress that turned into a castle. And you hear both terms used because it was it, it was indeed both things, um, a residence at one point and a place where soldiers um, 
were commanding the, the roads that went by it. It was ancient. It had been first um, built around the year 1000. Right. And yes. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so it was a really ancient uh, place, and it was uh, very difficult to get out of, almost impossible <laughs> to get out of. And um, uh, there were only 176 prisoners and at least twice that many guards. So they were uh, surveilled at um, every corner. There was almost no place that wasn't lit by searchlights or the prying eyes of the guards. And so getting out of Gavi was very, very hard. It's interesting because when you look at a photograph of it, and as I say, you haven't been there, you may be able to correct me even on this, but when, when I look at a photograph, although the common comparison with Gavi is often called it, and it does, it does regenerate this image of the castle on the hill overlooking a town, but in actual fact, when I look at a photograph of it and the way it's laid out, it's not so much called it that reminds me of it, it reminds me more of Alcatraz. Ah, yeah, that's very interesting. That's a good, yeah. That's a good, better comparison. It really does look like a penitentiary. Yes, yeah. It, it's just it's the it's the odd angles, the sort of weird layout. It, it's the bastion. Yeah, yeah, but, but, yeah exactly. It, it it reminded me every time I look at it. I and I have been to Alcatraz. I've not been to Gavi, but I have been to Alcatraz, and just that is what it reminds me far more of than than actual Colditz. Colditz reminds me. And for those who are aficionados of uh, Second World War escape stories, it reminds me far more of Starling Castle. I think that's absolutely true. Um, and uh, and it, again, that's what Pringle, who was the only one uh, other than um, David Sterling, who was in both Gavi and um, Colditz, they just said it was a much tougher nut to crack, Gavi. Mm. Mm. That uh, was April... This is April 43, is that correct? April 43. And in September uh, 43, the armistice was signed. So the uh, English and the Americans and Canadians had landed in Sicily. At that point, there was uh, an arrangement, an armistice that was signed in which Mussolini was removed from power. The agreement was that he was going to be turned over to the Allies, and also that the Italians were going to join the Allies and cut off any troops that were going to be retreating from Italy into Germany. And none of that happened. Mm. Uh, the Italian upper command, they f- fled Rome, the troops that were promised to Eisenhower to join in the cutting off the Germans, they never appeared. And Mark Clark, the American general, instead of trying to cut off the retreat, and this is controversial whether he disobeyed orders, but he decided he wanted to be the first person into Rome. And instead of cutting off the German army, marched into Rome as its great liberator. 
So it all turned into a kind of disaster. And at that point, all of the prisoners, and there were about 80,000 prisoners, mainly British, in, in, uh, in different camps throughout Italy, they imagined they would be able to walk out of the camps almost immediately, but an order was sent, which was called stay put, the Stay Put Order. It, it seemed like it came probably from Field Marshal Montgomery. Not totally clear, but I was going to say this is a. It's both very controversial in in terms of. Yes. In in the moment, it was a very controversial order that came out, but there's yes. also a lot of controversy and debate as to as a to who sent it out and who was responsible yes. for the order. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and the way that the order was obeyed was also uh, variable. So Yes, <laughs> very. Yeah, very. And this was something that Churchill was, of course, sensitive to as well in mm. terms of having been a prisoner. Um, he... Uh, wanted to make sure in the signing of the armistice that these prisoners were going to be protected. And that was one thing that Bedoglio, who became the new prime minister, the general, had, because uh, he he didn't act very honorably in other ways, Bedoglio, in terms of, uh, he was more, more or less worried about his own skin. But he did, he sent um, commands to all the POW camps that the prisoners should be allowed uh, to get out and that they shouldn't be handed over, with the exception of the black POWs, which was really outrageous. Mm. The order was a very strange one in that that was the exception. But the others, Bedoglio said that they should honor the armistice and should be let go. The order, the stay put order, was one which was predicated upon the fact that they thought the Germans would just leave the prisoners who were in Italian hands, but they didn't. Mm -hmm. And uh, almost, and they lied quite a bit about it, but almost immediately the prisoners in Gavi who had an opportunity to rebel, they had a plan to take over the prison and Clifton, who was the uh, South African, I'm sorry, who was the New Zealand colonel who by now was the SBO, balked and didn't put it in power and lost that opportunity. And by losing it, they were re-incarcerated, uh, really, by the Germans who took over the camp. And the Italians surrendered the camp without firing a shot. And the guards left, and they were replaced by German guards. Alistair is part of a group that's uh, creating a tunnel at the last minute, the Italians tell them where these tunnels exist that will lead to the village, the secret tunnels they've always been looking for. Mm -hmm. And Alistair joins a group that's um, digging this tunnel and is on the absolute verge of being uh, used when they finally are told to get ready to, uh, to go by train to Germany. There's prisoners, 80 prisoners hit. And um, Alistair eventually hides in a, a, a foul-smelling place that they enter by going down a toilet. And Buck Palm is the one who leads this group. There are 19 of them who hide together in 
this other cistern. It, ju just quickly, I think it's interesting to note that this point of prisoners who are about to be shipped off to Germany, and we're now post-armistice and what have you, and the Germans taking over the camps, was by no means unique to Gavi either. I mean, there, there are consistent yeah. stories throughout all the various prisoner war camps throughout Italy, whereby yes. as the Germans were moving in, yes. the prisoners were actually trying to stay in the camp. Um, yeah. And... and find a way to not be shipped out so that when once the once the prisoners have been shipped off to Germany, typically the German guards would hang around for maybe a week or uh -huh. so. And then essentially the prisoners of war who had attempted to hide within the camp could then just walk out at some stage once yeah. the Germans had gone. Really? That wow. that was the theory and the logic anyway. And it did it did happen, but the the my point being is that, you know, the fact that eighty and Gavi, which is a high percentage of what, hundred and seventy eight prisoners you said? That's right. That's right. Um, yeah. is a very high percentage of that. But it, it isn't in and of itself a unique escape style, shall we say, or escape attempt. Right. Um, okay. Yeah, and as you know, David, uh, Alistair successfully used that technique in mm. Czechoslovakia later on. Mm. We'll get to, but um, but yes, there were different ways in which every camp had to deal with it in, in their own way. And you're absolutely right. And um, but what happened with this group? The, they they had destroyed the um, the papers that the Germans would have needed to tell how many prisoners and who the prisoners were. And so they were able to get to those papers and hide them or destroy them. So the Germans weren't really aware of how many prisoners there were, but they were aware of the presence and importance of George Clifton, the colonel who was the SBO. And Clifton, who was of course the, the one communicating with the uh, German commander who had taken over, he insisted on being one of the ones who hid. Right. That's what gave them all away. They were going to put him in the front seat of the truck that they were all driving away in to go to the rails, to the railroad, that of course they would miss Clifton. And that began this whole series of events of rooting out the, um, the hidden prisoners. They found all these prisoners, which is incredible because a lot of them were so well hidden. Moscatelli came and um, led the search. The Germans didn't mind throwing hand grenades into various places that they thought prisoners might be, wow. uh, including where Alistair was hidden with uh, 19 other prisoners. And eventually they found them all and um, put them on a train for Germany which began another series of escapes on the train and as it um, made its way towards Germany. Alistair was the last prisoner to escape before the Brenner Pass, before they actually entered into Austria. They were reaching Bolzano, which is uh, quite a lovely place and is the last city before you climb through the Brenner Pass. And he called to... Uh, Jack and said, I think I'm going to have an appendicitis. <laughs> and out of nowhere, he started to fake this appendicitis. And um, they got the British doctor, um, who was another New Zealander, to examine him. And Alistair knew exactly what to do. And partially because Alistair 
uh, when he was still at, uh, in his late teens, had been climbing with a good friend of his who had appendicitis. And Alistair had to basically carry him out of the mountains to find a doctor who operated uh, on him on a kitchen table up in the mountains around Aviemore. Wow. <laughs> so Alistair really knew what the symptoms were. And they were able to convince the Germans that he would die if he wasn't taken off the train and immediately taken to a hospital and operated upon. So Alistair succeeded in, in getting off the train and every, everybody was <laughs> both envious and, and uh, very admiring of Alistair's resourcefulness. But they get to the uh, hospital which was a hospital basically for German troops. Doctor spoke perfect English, went through the routine of uh, examining him, said, yeah, you got a bad case of appendicitis. We'll operate on you in 40 minutes. <laughs> well, you know, he was pretty hysterical. <laughs> you know, I should have chosen something that wasn't so specific. Yeah. <laughs> and so now he's left with this idea that he's going to be operated on for an appendicitis he doesn't even have. And at the last minute, there's an emergency, and a German soldier who's been hit by a truck is wheeled in, and they decide that they have to operate on him before Alistair. So he is saved within minutes from being operated upon. Small mercies. <laughs> Gosh. Yeah, exactly. And he's, uh, he's put up in the uh, hospital with all these uh, German soldiers. This word is where he has a little sort of romantic moment with an Italian uh, woman who comes in sort of like a Red Cross worker and Alistair is, confides in her, they kiss, she advises him. She knows he's going to escape and advises him about what to do and the dangers of what uh, lie ahead of him. That night, he figures out how to get out, and the next day at night, he's able to leave the hospital, and he escapes that night into Bolzano, late at night, and starts climbing into the mountains. This is uh, climbing into the South Tyrol, and there are these vigilante forces, which are known as the SOD, who are roaming around looking for Jews, looking for Italians that they uh, want to have revenge against, and killing people. And uh, they're a dangerous, dangerous SS type of troop that's um, wandering about. Alistair's aware of them, careful not to travel during the day, finding a place to lay up and only traveling at night. But he's kind of restless as he gets close to the Swiss border. He knows the terrain of the Dolomites, pretty well. He sees this high peak, which is the landmark for going through and crossing Switzerland, and he can't resist starting out at dusk when it's still light. And all of a sudden, he's within viewing range of a farm stand where these uh, Austrians, Tyrolese, are out front, and they're working. And he stumbles right onto a boy who's part of this uh, farm group, who starts to scream and yell, and they run down and they recapture Alistair. And they decide that they're gonna kill him. 
this point, one of them grabs his rifle and points it at Alistair. And this is very dramatic as Alistair describes this whole scene. And the mother of these characters who now have Alistair and are going to kill him runs out and says, this is enough. And she puts her arms around Alistair to protect him. And again, he's just about to be shot by these Germans, these uh, Tyrolese who are members of the SOD. And Alistair then says that he's uh, actually a British officer. And that changes things. And then they break out a bottle of wine and cheese and start to um, treat him very differently. <laughs> Excellent. And, yeah. he's, Alistair's got a real roller coaster of luck, hasn't he? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, because uh, luck is one of the main things you can't escape without and you can't plan, plan for, um, but it's an essential ingredient for any successful escape. Um, so he's, he's marched back to Bolzano, and on the way he's brought into a village where he's put in prison in this village, and and not long after, he hears this German coming and saying, where is he? Where is the son of a bitch? Where is he? I want to get my hands on him. He's a giant German soldier who's completely drunk, whose family has been killed in an air raid in Germany. And he breaks into the cell where Alistair is and nearly beats him to death. Eventually, they go in and they pull this uh, fellow off of Alistair, who's bleeding profusely. Uh, from his skull and which they wrap up now in a giant turban and the next day he's driven into Bolzano which has just been bombed by the Allies and so the Gestapo headquarters have been bombed there's troops running all over this way and that it's a total disaster and Alistair's brought to the train station and thrown on a train, and he uh, immediately starts to cut a hole in the car, and uh, the train. <laughs> and there's a couple of uh, British uh, other ranks there who are working with him. They're captured, uh, trying to get out of this train, cutting a hole, and at that point, they're shipped to uh, Mooseburg, and he ends up in, which is really the... Uh, the largest German camp uh, that existed in terms of prisoner war camp. And Alistair, uh, inside of this camp, has a very odd um, position because as he's going into the camp, he decides to uh, slip in and basically not be registered. So he's sort of like a, immediately like a ghost in the camp. And it frees him to go into all these different compounds, which he says was one of the most pleasant periods that he ever spent. And he's trading for money and clothing and food and information. And uh, it's a, a virtual United Nations. <laughs> for which, of course, Alistair says it, for him it was very easy to escape. There was actually a point that I wanted to pick up on yeah. uh, with regards to what you said, which is yeah. actually the implications of a prisoner of war coming into a camp and not being registered, which is, of course, that they wouldn't receive food. Um, because if they didn't have them registered there, they didn't know that they had to provide food for them. 
and therefore they didn't get their food ration, which was uh, a major issue in a time uh, oh. when you know the Geneva Convention uh, required oh. that uh, the guards uh, provided fifteen hundred calories to uh, per day to every prisoner, which was. Uh, we we know now that two thousand is required for a uh, fully grown male, but uh, even then it was it was known that you were effectively slowly starving, if mm. even if you got those fifteen hundred calories. So you were taking a big risk by not being registered. Well, he uh, he was very involved with the black market. Yes, yes, <laughs> that, that that was one way of getting around it. Yeah, and that's really clear, you know. And, uh, you know, as he, he made the point, he could get pretty much anything he wanted in Mooseburg. Mm. Here's his description. I'll just read, uh, which I, I like. Mm, please do. He's coming into Mooseburg, and he's, uh, he's very excited. So he writes, this is, is from his journal, that where should one choose to go? The choice was embarrassing. Through Poland into Russia, down the Danube to the Black Sea, by Vienna and Budapest to Turkey, through Austria and Italy to the British uh, line, north through Stettin to Sweden, west over the Rhine to Alsace and France, northwest into Belgium or Holland, southwest over the Silvretti Alps into Switzerland. The choice was dazzling for information poured in on all routes. Friends, contacts, relatives, trains, patrol guards. I talked and listened every day until worn out. I fell asleep, exhausted at night. I learned more about the inside of Europe in a few weeks than I had done in many years of reading. For one got the essential feel of each country from a multitude of angles, above all, on the internal state of Germany. For these men working in the country in contact with a great net of foreign workers knew the very last detail. He's, uh, he's soaking it all in. And he's, he's, he actually sounds like he's enjoying himself. Yeah, yeah. It, it, so, it, it's, an odd, it's an odd thing to kind of hear... I suppose it gives you an idea of how bad his previous experience was. That moving <laughs> moving to a prisoner war camp just outside of Munich, which was not famed for its uh, friendly camp systems. Yeah. Um, yeah. That moving to a, a prisoner war camp just outside of Munich was considered an upgrade. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, and especially yes, exactly. After the sort of claustrophobia of of being in this uh, this stone box, which was Gavi. He's in this camp with thousands of people speaking all these different languages. And he loved taking on uh, different identities as well. Um, and um, he, uh, in another passage, uh, he says, uh, When in disguise, it is necessary to think oneself into the disguise. If a German one must think in German so that one's instinctive reaction to a question is in German. If a Frenchman, then one must learn to walk as a Frenchman, to behave towards Germans as one. One must be careful not to mix the two languages in certain circumstances, especially in conjunctions and exclamations. A carefully dropped German word may well prejudice one in the eyes of a friendly Frenchman. A disguise is not merely clothes, but must be thought and lived at all times. 
It is not enough to pretend to be another. One must be another. These are really uh, incredible descriptions from a person who is very uh, uh, inhibited, reserved, uh, and he is uh, expressing himself as an escaper in a way that an, an actor does. And that's that's exactly what was going through my head. It, it reminds me of the method acting style. Yeah, it we, felt very performance heavy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is absolutely the case with Alistair, and he took on so many different characters. And his first, or, or it, it's actually his second escape from uh, Mooseburg. He decides, I'll be an Italian, and he <laughs> goes around and collects the various things that he needs to do that, and he escapes as an Italian businessman. It was for Alistair, it was not hard getting out of, of Mooseburg. And it, he, uh, his first escape from Mooseburg, he had the help from the French. They got him into the German compound, hit him in uh, a loo. And then at dark, he just uh, got out, climbed over the fence, and, w and was gone. And that began his first escape, which was several weeks going through the forest all the way to Passau on the uh, um, the Austrian border, where Germany and Austria come together with the uh, Danube and, and two other rivers come together in this beautiful town called Passau. And he walks uh, alone through the mountain, through the forest and has all sorts of hallucinations and different experiences that are very, very dramatic, but feels comfortable with it. He's a person who, um, likes the night, likes to be alone, likes to experience nature in this incredibly intimate way. And his descriptions of that in his diaries are amongst the most powerful that um, he, he left. And they're really very, very beautiful. From Passau, he tries to, he thinks he's going to be able to board a boat and go down all the way into Bulgaria and eventually the Black Sea and, and Turkey. <clears throat> where he'd be repatriated. He can't find a boat. Uh, he eventually goes by train into um, what today is northern Slovenia and um, a town in northern Slovenia where supposedly the resistance has already arrived and he thinks he'll be able to meet with them and then travel south. He's unable to and he comes back uh, north heading back to Vienna, and he's caught by uh, station guards at one of the stops and returned again to um, Moosburg. He uh, actually, there's an escape in the escape where he's recaptured and put in a local prison and escapes once again by convincing the head of the prison's wife who's running it while he's off, that he's a French farm worker who, if he doesn't get back to the farm he's working on, will be killed. And he shows that he's been beaten around the head because he's still suffering from the beating that he, resolved, he got when he escaped from Bolzano. And she believes him and uh, helps him get away. So he eventually is returned to Mooseburg and he escapes again, and the, the, the escape that he makes 
The second time is with the help of various Americans who are working in the in the train yards, moving clothing and other things around, and he's able to join their party and escape in the work party. And in this escape, he ends up in the Munich uh, rail yards where he is discovered getting onto a train by a German guard and they have a fight as the train starts to leave the station. He's trying to push the German off the train and uh, he, the German keeps on grabbing him and holding him. And eventually the two of them topple off the train, which is moving by then. And the German ro- rolls under the, uh, the, the, uh, the train and is killed. Oh my gosh. Um, and that's the second time uh, Alistair is involved in the death of one of his uh, guards. The first one was in Sicily, which is also quite a dramatic story. So he's walking out of the train station. He's probably pretty shaken up um, and not totally clear about his surroundings after this really traumatic event. And an older woman in front of him all of a sudden drops a bag of uh, apples and various fruits and, and food. And Alistair makes the mistake of helping her pick them all up. And within minutes, German guards are on top of them. She's a black marketeer that they've been looking for. Oh. And so they say, and, and who are you? <laughs> they arrest him and they bring him back to Mooseburg. And now the Gestapo take over and they, uh, they come in and arrest him. Now Alistair is brought up to uh, Luchenwald, which is a big prison camp that has a special compound that the Gestapo is, is running. And they're also trying to recruit people in this prison to join the group of, of British and Commonwealth soldiers who are going over to uh, the German side. And um, Alistair, they're trying to trick him by putting stooges into his uh, his cell. He's not fooled by that. And um, he, after several weeks of mistreatment in Luchenwald, he's sent to Czechoslovakia. The poor Czechs are are they are a really mistreated group uh, during the war, as many were, but the Czechs suffered uh, tremendously. And um, Alistair ends up in this camp called Mary's Trobau, which has many of the people from Gavi in it. There's about 1,500 prisoners. It was the military academy. And sure enough, not long after he arrives, David Sterling and Jack Pringle arrive. They have also escaped from the train, but not uh, until the train got into um, Austria and they're caught in the mountains. They end up in another prisoner of war camp and then they are eventually brought to Mary's Travel. And in Mary's Travel, David Sterling sort of takes over not simply the escape committee, but he creates this elaborate plan equivalent to what Roger Bushel did in Stalaglyph Three. He comes up with a plan to uh, escape with 200 or 250 people. 
similar again to bushel. And they're going to do this in a series of tunnels. And again, there's a similarity here. They start four separate tunnels. And the tunnels, one by one, are all discovered. Likely there's a stooge. Some of the tunnels are destroyed by the water table and the rains and the water floods the tunnels. But it's a very disheartening process. And uh, Sterling decides that he doesn't want the escape to get people back to England. He wants the escape to have these people join the Czech resistance and the Czech underground army. He believes the, the British, if they are going to be able to push back against Stalin and the communists after the war, they need to be a force during the war, helping the Czechs and winning over their loyalty. He sees the British as um, very vulnerable to the, what's going to happen after the war with the communists. So in that way, he's sort of prescient. Mm, I was going to say very impressive geopolitical foresight. That's, and that's yeah, exactly. Um, so they make what they think is contact with the Czech resistance. But it's likely that once again, Sterling's being played. Mm -hmm. And it's actually uh, counterintelligence people amongst the Germans who are arranging these meetings and giving false names and addresses to uh, Pringle, who's actually meeting with them. And Alistair is part of this process as well. And Alistair thinks that it's all crazy, that the plan that Sterling has developed is suicidal. And he slightly keeps his distance, but Pringle and Sterling keep bringing him back into it. After the tunnels have been discovered, Sterling comes up with a plan, which is uh, sort of like the War Warburg wire job, mm -hmm. in which they're going to use these planks to lean against the, uh, the fence, the barbed wire, and climb over, again, which they did in Warburg earlier on. He gets these planks by telling the Germans that as a Scot, they need to have a dance platform so they can <laughs> practice their religion. And the dance platform becomes like a wooden horse. It's a crazy idea. And they're going to dance. They dance on the platform. The scapers are underneath. They break it up really quickly. They, they line it up. Uh, with between the window and the fence, and then they climb over it. The guards are uh, demobilized by fire extinguishers or, or hoses, that they're going to have fire hoses that are going to be trained on the towers. So are they going to prevent the guards from firing their machine guns at the escapers, while other prisoners create diversions by dressing up as German guards and running all around the camp, confusing people. <laughs> it's a pretty crazy... It seems it ambitious, a, yeah. seems ambitious. I spoke to a number of people who were part of this, and they were all fairly terrified. <laughs> 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 they were 
And uh, there was a stooge in the camp, and I talk a lot about who that probably was, a man named Van Zucco, who claimed he was a South African doctor. Um, he, he wasn't. Um, and um, the, the whole thing is given away. And right before they are going to escape and put this plan in action, the Germans summarily announced that the whole camp is being evacuated and brought to northern Germany to Braunschweig. David Sterling and, and uh, Jack Pringle decide that they're going to hide and they're going to stay in the camp in this um, false wall that they've built in an attic in one of the buildings. And after they leave, they're going to go out and make contact with the uh, Czech underground army that they believe they have contacts with. Sterling is cited and arrested and he's shipped out to Germany. And at that point, Jack Pringle goes to Alistair and says, well, you take Sterling's place and we'll escape together. But the SBO of the camp forbids Pringle to do this because he thinks that Pringle is going to be, that Sterling is not going to be in Braunschweig and he wants to have Pringle as his second in command with the escape process. So he forbids him to hide. And at that point, Jack goes to Alistair and asks him if he'll stay behind and escape. The reason that it's very important for him to do this is that there has been a group of escapers called the First Flight. And that group of six, they went out and they were uh, the advance guard that was going to make contact with the Czech underground so that when the mass escape took place, people would have places to go. And they were arranging all this. And somebody had to go and warn them that there was no escape and that anybody who had committed to helping these prisoners were released from this. Alistair had been told by the Gestapo in Luchenwald that if he was captured again, they were going to kill him. So on no uncertain terms, he was a marked man. And Alistair, by agreeing to do this, was really signing his own death sentence because he figured he would be captured probably in Prague and that they would just execute him. But he agreed to do it. And um, he hid in this... Uh, blocked off area. This was a false panel there. And um, uh, he hid with a person named Gaze, and they escaped easily after the Germans had left. Exactly what you were saying, David. They stayed several days. And Alistair made it all the way to Prague. He could not find these two people. Uh, uh, two were together, and there was a third one who he was supposedly going to meet the advance guard from the, uh, the camp. And eventually he's picked up by the, the Gestapo. Tortured, put in a uh, 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 Panchek prison, and which is the Gestapo headquarters in Prague, kept there for a while. And Alistair's sure that he's going to be killed. Um, and 
Eventually, he's put into another Gestapo prison called Pankrek. And from there, all the time, certain that he's going to be killed. And from there, he's shipped off to, um, to finally to Braunschweig, which is where the um, uh, where uh, Jack Pringle and David Sterling are, and he finds them there. By now, you're getting sort of close to the end of the war, and uh, people uh, become aware that the uh, Germans have published this uh, order that escaping prisoners are going to be shot, and uh, very few prisoners now are escaping. They're sort of preparing for the end of the war. Sterling and Pringle are preparing for the SAA, the uh, the SAS's role in Japan and the Far East, which is where they want to go. So even they are are sort of now sort of waiting it out. But Alistair refuses to do that, and he decides now. He's tried every way of escaping. He decides now that he's going to uh, pretend to be insane and be repatriated. That's a very brave choice. Right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And so he develops this case of melancholia. He sits on the end of his bed. He's not even doing his Mueller exercises, staring into space, not talking. All things that he can do from his training. And um, eventually, he's sent to an insane asylum, a a public one, not one for soldiers, which is really unusual for the severely insane, and locked up in this giant communal cell. And he there experiences something that's very traumatic, which is these giant raids now that are going over uh, to Germany, you know, the thousand plane raids. And they drop bombs in a nearby town. And as the planes are going over, the prisoners all start to riot. They're, you know, these are prisoners who have been labeled insane. And um, they stampede. And uh, a number of people are trampled to death. The guards has his head cracked open with the with brains splattered all over. And Alistair saves himself by climbing up into a window well and um, and watches the whole thing happen beneath him. Soon after, the um, the head of this uh, institute, this insane song, who is a resistor, a resistor in the sense that he refused, like many people who worked in these institutions, to hand his prisoners over for euthanasia, mm-hmm. which was, we know, that was the beginning of the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is it and, the T4? Is that what they called it? Yeah, exactly. Exactly, David. Exactly. So this, uh, this institute um, was one that uh, not only resisted giving the Germans the names of uh, the patients, uh, it it lied and said that they were capable of working, which was one of the criteria. If they weren't, you know, they were parasites of the state and were killed. And the head of the institute came to Alistair and said, um, "I know you're faking, and I can't I can't protect you." 
and I can't get you released and repatriated, but you're going to have to be careful because the Gestapo has been in touch with me about your case and how dangerous you are. And Alistair was seen as being very dangerous. And so he was sent back to the camp, still wouldn't give up, <laughs> and had himself, he said, if I can't find anybody here to re get me repatriated, I'm going to ask to be sent to another camp, particularly this camp called Rotenburg, which is right next to Spangenberg. In that camp was the doctor from Gavi, who on the train diagnosed him falsely with with appendicitis. Oh, right. Okay. Helped him escape, and this uh, this New Zealand doctor had done things like this before, and he had set up a a, a mock board for uh, to for people to present their repatriation cases as a type of practice. Okay. As to, sort of a, like a, a moot court, you know what I'm saying? Mm. And um, so he was active in sort of helping people to uh, create their cases. It, it's probably worth saying that at this stage that there was, a, I think I'm right in saying it was the protecting powers, did have a medical repatriation board whereby they would make an assessment on yes. a, a prisoner who was physically incapable of fighting again and could be repatriated yes. without it being uh, at risk. You're absolutely right. Um, so Alistair, he's put on a train and he's going to be sent um, uh, to um, Leipzig, I think, or Dresden, and the bombings start to take place. And he ends up in a station where they have to stop and Dresden, of course, is a completely bombed and mm -hmm. aflame. And it's too dangerous, they say, to bring Alistair into the air raid shelter. And um, they put him in a, a locked cabin on the, tr on the tracks okay. by the train. And Alistair's sure he's going to die. And uh, he doesn't. Afterwards, he's stunned by the level of devastation. That sort of ends that... Uh, period of the possibility of being repatriated for mental problems, he's brought back to Rottenburg and at the uh, beginning of April, really the end of March, it's the end of March, the camp is evacuated. This is, this is now March 1945. March 1945. If I can just, again, quickly interject yeah. on that, the Gestapo were on his case and, and quite brazenly said to him, if you escape yes. again, we will kill you. And what's interesting for me here is that um, by this stage, the Great Escape had taken place. Bushel and 49 others had, yes. been, had been shot for uh, their uh, part in the Great Escape. And yes. um, it, it's interesting that with all of these parallels and, and the knowledge of what happened, I think they called it the Bullet Order, is that correct? Um, yes, when they said yes. that the prisoners would be escaped, I mean, he he is still going in spite of all of this. You know, he's got the Gestapo on his back. We, we, there is yes. evidence that if you escape, they will kill you. There is no question mark on that, and yet he is still going. <laughs> David, not only that, and what you say is exactly true. He has found out that the other people who uh, had escaped from Marius Trabau, who he went to warn in Prague, mm. he finds out that they were tortured and killed. He knows that by now. Right. Their ashes 
were brought back to Braunschweig, and um, they realized that they were killed in the same way as the great escapers. Mm. The time frame is parallel. Alistair leads the search after the war for the people who killed his friends. Right, okay. Okay. As a prosecutor. So everything you're saying is, is true. It's just, it's really personal. Mm. <laughs> he's in touch with those people who, you know, have been murdered. He knows it's happened. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's been threatened on many occasions. So uh, at, at that point, he's, he's brought back to Rottenberg. Uh, and um, they evacuate the camp. The Germans are given the order by Hitler that they should not let any prisoners of war fall into Allied hands. And, you know, Hitler gives the order to escape to the last man. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of movement of these enormous groups of prisoners who are often misidentified as troops and bombed by their own people. The prisoners from Rockburg, and if you look at the pictures, you see that the ones in the front all have white towels that they're carrying over their shoulders. Mm -hmm. He took the white towels and sheets, and whenever planes came over that threatened them, they arranged them in a way that said POWs or PWs. Right. Ah, that's they'd, yeah. they'd be able to read them. Because there are, again, a number of instances of POWs being killed at the end of the war by, I guess you'd call it friendly fire in mm. a sense. So uh, a lot of people are escaping from these columns. And Alistair's um, column is skirting the Hartz Mountains, which are the largest mountain range in sort of northern Germany. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be one of the redoubts that Hitler's uh, saying we're going to hold off to the very bitter end. And the, the uh, commandant of this prison camp, Rottenberg, is, uh, is determined to follow Hitler's orders. And in a town called Rosla, Alistair has found a civilian suit and he puts it on. And when they're told to leave the camp, he's got a cap is fedora as well Alistair appears walking in the opposite direction dressed as a civilian they don't question him actually they raise their rifles to get him to move quicker and to not be so close to the to the calm and from there he starts climbing up into the mountains it must have been just too much to for him, you know, for someone like him to have the mountains right there. It must have been so tempting. Yeah, and it's 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 fitting. It's on his bucket list. Yeah, that's his final escape. And he climbs up, and he's he finds a group of refugees and former prisoners of war up there, and uh, they sort of insist that he stays with them. He's climbed for two days, and then finally a group of American soldiers come in jeeps an advanced unit, and he leaves with them. And he succeeds in escaping in the beginning of April 1945 mm -hmm. and is flown back uh, eventually to Scotland where he discovers that his father has died two months earlier, which is mm. quite a shock for him. Mm. He's had 
very little contact you can imagine moving from camp to camp after Italy. Mm-hmm. He has not heard much from his family. No, no, uh, and of, of course, with that may, with that number of changes, yeah. letters would almost chase you around occupied Europe, and if you're constantly exactly. escaping, uh, as uh, on top of that, which which he was, um, I I can't imagine that contact was very regular at all. Very sad to only miss the moment by two months as mm. well after traveling yeah. around. I, exactly, an only child who was very close, loved his father. Mm. He decides uh, he's not going to stay in Scotland, and um, he's recruited by the crimes uh, unit to go to uh, Germany, to Oinhausen, which is where the, uh, the British Army of the Rhine has set up shop, and also the uh, group of prosecutors. And Alistair, of course, is a trained lawyer. Mm-hmm. So... He is a perfect candidate for this small group of prosecutors who are tracking down Nazi war criminals, speaks fabulous German, knows the countryside, is, uh, you know, as an escaper, he's really like an intelligence officer, which is what he becomes. Mm -hmm. He's the intelligence unit. And he spends over two years uh, tracking down and prosecuting German war criminals. When these units disband, uh, which they're forced to do in the late uh, 40s, 1948 or so, Alistair is asked to go to Kenya and become a magistrate there. And he goes to Kenya and he, um, he he wanted to go to Africa. And Kenya was particularly exciting for him because of the opportunity to climb there. And he really wanted to climb Kilimanjaro and Mount Kenya. And he spent, he he was really like a a mountain climber who happened to be a magistrate, rather than a magistrate who happened to be a mountain (laughs) climber. And he ended up climbing everywhere. He met and married Isabel. Nicholson, who had been a nurse during the war. They were a wonderful pair. And he retired in 1968, moved back to Edinburgh. And then he died at the age of 84. And his ashes were scattered up in the highlands. And uh, they were joined by the ashes of his beloved widow, Isabel Cram, who died in 2016. Oh, she was a wonderful character, and I couldn't have learned. I, I I couldn't have uh, learned what I did and written the book that I wrote about Alistair without her. Mm-hmm. And that's the story of Alistair Cram. And he um, he probably sat down for uh, he, for several months after the war and scribbled all of these uh, things down about his escapes and. Everything that had occurred, I thought there must be something that he had left. He had done too much, and um, and he was too talented not to have either written or recorded something. And indeed, he had. And so I, I uh, without getting too mystical about it, there was a kind of a sense of completion and almost destiny for me that I got the opportunity 
to finally write an escape book of my own. And um, I feel lucky that I did and lucky that somehow Alistair found me to give it to. Well, uh, I I have to say, as someone who has read that book, I'm absolutely delighted that you did come across it because it is... It's a great read. It's a fantastic story. And of course, Alistair's uh, such a great character throughout it all. And uh, I, I suppose the only thing left to us is to, is to say to anyone listening to this podcast, please do go out and buy the book and read it for yourself. And also to thank you for uh, joining us because this has been absolutely brilliant. Yes, I've, thank I've you, loved David. it so much. Once again, we would like to thank David for joining us to talk about Alistair's story. He was so incredibly generous with his time, and we are very grateful that he sat down with us. We would like to also encourage anyone who's listening to buy David's book. It's called The 21 Escapes of Lieutenant Alistair Cram. We would also like to take this moment to let you know that this is actually the last episode of Series 1 of For You, The War Is Over. So there is going to be a short break in episodes that are being posted. Don't worry though, we're already working really hard on Series 2 and gathering together more amazing real-life POW escape stories, plus so much more. Series 2 is going to be released in May, so there isn't too long to wait, but in the meanwhile, please share the podcast with your friends and family, or feel free to message us with any questions or queries on our Twitter at FYTWIO, or our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash FYTWIO, or you can drop us an email on fytwiopod at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening and we will see you very soon. Bye.